Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, I don't know how your house uh, is, but in my house, we weren't one of those homes where I grew up where the present showed up by Santa Claus between the 24th and the 25th, so they were there Christmas morning. We didn't do Santa in our house. My mom and dad just began placing the presents around the tree throughout the entire month of December. So that pile just slowly began to grow. And of course, uh, as a preteen boy, you can imagine what I was doing, checking the presents, find out which had my name on them. Now the good part was I was an only child. So most of them had my name. I really thought I was hitting the jackpot. Then Christmas morning came, and um, I discovered that my parents were giving me a lot of what we call, uh, as parents, practical presents. Thank you, Aunt Dot, for the a nice pair of socks. It's what I've always been dreaming of this year. And thank you, Aunt Esther, for the clean white underwear. I'm thrilled. Even though there was a lot of practical gifts, my parents were always good. They had a few fun gifts that were under the tree. One year it was a remote-controlled car. Another year it was Legos. And those are the kind of gifts that made Christmas morning great as a preteen boy. Well, this morning, with the spirit of Christmas in the air, I want to give you a gift. And it's not just a practical gift. It's one of those gifts that you actually will want, and it's something you actually need. What is that gift? It's the message I'm going to give you this morning. What we're going to talk about today is how you and I can have victory over sin in our life. That's something we all don't just need to hear, but that's something we want to hear. Because aren't we struggling with sin every day of our lives? Now, I don't care what sin you're struggling with this morning. It may be habitual sin that you've been struggling with for years. Or it may be new sin, something that you just found yourself tripping into for the first time this week. It may be a private sin that nobody else knows about. Or it may be a public sin that every el everyone else has found out about. No matter what it is, what we're going to talk about this morning will give you the instructions and the directions you need from God our Savior on how you can find victory over sin in your everyday life. And to me, that's one of the best gifts I can possibly give you this Christmas season. If you've been with us for the month of December, you know that we are in a series called The Advent of the Sun. We are hopping and skipping our way through the book of Romans, pulling out some select passages that teach us about Jesus Christ and why he came. Uh, Pastor Chris and Pastor Stephen had the first two messages in this series. They focuses, focused in on Romans chapters 1 through 3, which talks about the problem of sin. Pastor Chris's sermon focused in on how sin is the problem for all people. And Pastor Stephen's sermon focused in on how sin is not just the problem for all people, but sin is even the problem for religious people who are trying to please God. And when sin is the problem... Thank goodness Jesus is always the answer. Isn't that true? 
And that brings us to where Pastor Jordan was last week. He focused in on Romans chapter 4 and 5. Uh, when the gift of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. And what he did is he brought us justification. The gift of being restored into a right relationship with God. And what I'm going to do is focus in on Romans chapter 6 through 8. And we're going to look at the gift of sanctification. Which is how Jesus gives us victory over sin in our everyday life. Now since justification and sanctification are big words... I put on the top of your outline uh, some more definitions of what they mean. Justification is being forgiven of my sin and being made right with God positionally. Sanctification, which is what we're looking at this morning, is breaking free from the power of sin and living right for God practically. The key text we're going to pull this morning's message out of is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. So go ahead if you have your copy of your Bible. Take your Bibles out. I don't care if it's electronic or if it's paper. Turn to Romans chapter 6. And then out of honor of the Word of God, please stand. Follow along with your eyes and your copy of God's Word, if you have it, as I read verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to our sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace." That ends the reading of the Word of God. You can be seated. Paul begins in the start of chapter 6 by answering this question. Have it in your notes. Why shouldn't I increase my sin so God can simply show more grace for my sin? If we're going to begin in Romans chapter 6, we need to at least be familiar with what the end of Romans chapter 5 was talking about. 
Paul had just introduced the Romans to this amazing reality. The fact is that Jesus Christ died for our sin. Jesus Christ paid for our sin once and for all in full. Jesus Christ's death on the, the cross took care of all the sins of our past, all the sins of our present, and even the sins that we will commit in our future. If we have trusted in Christ, we are totally and completely saved by Christ. And there is no more any payment needed for sin. Amen? Now Paul realizes that when he says that, some people will take this the wrong way. You mean I can sin all I want and just get away with it? I have a get-out-of-jail-free card, like I'm playing with a game of Monopoly. The get-out-of-jail-free card is Jesus. I can go hog-wild in sin and enjoy sin and I'll always be forgiven of sin. What a great idea! They're taking and misusing uh, something Paul said in Romans chapter 5. It was this. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increase, increased, grace abounded all the more. The more I sin, the more God gives his grace. I love this truth. What do you think? Is that the way Christians should live? Enjoy their sin, go hog wild in sin, and just get more grace from God for their sin? Now, hopefully, you've been well taught. You know that's not true. But, you know, there are some people who actually believe that. Somebody who was famous who believed that was a man named Rasputin. He was actually a Russian monk. He was an advisor to the Romanov family, which was the ruling family in Russia. And he told them, if you really want to experience God's grace, sin and sin mightily. He told them, go ahead, have affairs. Go ahead, steal money. Take what you want. As long as you ask God to forgive you of your sin, you'll experience abounding grace for your sin. Because where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's what Rasputin told them. Now, you and I know that something doesn't ring true with that. Well, we do believe that God's grace will always continue to increase in relation to our sin, but we shouldn't be delighting in sin. One thing that Rasputin uh, completely forgot about is, while God does forgive us of our sin, aren't there consequences that always go along with sin? When we sin, isn't it true that we suffer? Consequences always go with sin. I'll give you an example. Let's say that you're following Rasputin's advice. Where, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. So why as well go hog wild in sin. And you decide you're going to be a Christian bank robber. I know those two things don't seem to go together, but just follow along with me. You decide you want to go steal. And get a bunch of money and be rich. So you rob your bank, but because you're a Christian bank robber, you're a really bad bank robber. You end up getting caught by the cops. You're in the back of the car, they're dragging you off to jail, and the arresting officer looks back and sees you in prayer, head bowed, hands folded, talking to God. And then when you're done talking to him, you, you're talking to God, you say to the arresting officer, well, I'm a Christian, and I've prayed, and God has forgiven me of my sin, where sin increased, grace increased all the more, and I don't want you to have a higher standard than God. 
So you can just let me out here and I'll go along my way. What will that officer say to you? What? Like, absolutely not. Like, sorry, buddy. There are consequences of robbing a bank. You're going to jail. So what are the problems with someone like Rasputin who says, hey, where sin increases, grace increases all the more? Why, it's true that God does forgive us and Jesus does forgive us. There are still consequences to our sin, which is one of the reasons as Christians we want to avoid sin. But while you think Rasputin is a fruitcake, and maybe my illustration of a Christian bank robber was a little corny, do you realize that there's a lot of people who live that way today? A lot of people who say, well, I might as well just enjoy my sin because God's always going to forgive my sin. And I don't have to worry about the consequences of my sin. An example that comes to mind was um, when I was a freshman at college. You know what it's like when you're going to college and you're a freshman and you're excited because there's all these new friends and there's all these new girls that are at college with you. And you can't wait to get to meet all these girls and Myself and the other guys were excited to make all those new relationships. And one of the guys th at college, um, he's not a close friend of mine, more like an acquaintance. He started to date one of those girls. And no big deal, but it started to go around in sort of a gossipy way that he was actually sleeping with that girl. And he claimed to be a Christian, and I was a Christian. So uh, myself and a, and a friend, we sort of grabbed him after general education class and had him in the hall and talked to him and said, can we talk to you about something? We've heard that, you know, you're not just dating her, but you're like actually sleeping with her. That's not a good thing. I don't think that's something that Christians should do. And you know what he said? Well, I know it's not something that should be done, but, you know, Jesus always forgives. We're, we're really committed in our hearts. We're going to get married after, after college. We have just four years more to go. And I said, well, that's, still, it's not right. He said, but Jesus always forgives us, doesn't he? Well, it's true that Jesus forgives. But there are still consequences that go along with our sin. This one, I didn't speak this verse, but this one comes to mind as I was thinking about it. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Uh, I don't think that sounds too good. Or Hebrews 11.25, sin is enjoyable, but only for a short time. After a while, it'll turn around and, and bite you. Romans chapter 6 is answering uh, the Rasputins of this world answering our, my college friend. Not only is it true that when we sin, do we suffer, because there's always consequences, but when we sin as Christians, the reason we don't delight in sin and continue in sin is because now you and I have been made into completely different people, foundationally different people, who don't delight in sin, but actually are repulsed by sin. This is the next point. Christians should not continue in sin because now they are dead to sin, Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may just abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? 
He says, don't you understand that when you became a Christian, something fundamentally changed in your life? You are completely different from who you were before you were a Christian. Your whole relationship to sin has changed. You are now dead to sin. Well, what does being dead to sin mean? Some people say it means that we're no longer tempted to sin. That can't be true. I find sin very tempting, don't you? Some people say being dead to sin now means that we now realize that sin is wrong when we didn't realize it was wrong before. I knew sin was wrong before I was a Christian. Didn't you? Maybe I didn't know how wrong it was, but I knew it was wrong. What does Paul mean when he says that now that we've become a Christian, we are dead to sin? If we could understand that, then I think we'd begin to under, unpack this whole idea about how our relationship to sin changes. Let me give you the answer in a nutshell, and I put it in your outline for you. Dead to sin means we are no longer under the reign of sin. When we become a Christian, sin is no longer reigning, ruling, and controlling our hearts. Is sin still attractive? Yes. Is sin still, uh, can it still deceive us? Yes. But sin is no longer controlling us. We no longer have to obey sin's commands because we are now completely new people. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We are no longer in a situation where we're being ruled by sin. Now we're ruled and reigned by Jesus in our hearts. I'll give you an illustration that would help us wrap our understanding around this. Remember when ISIS took over Iraq in the, in the news a couple years ago? And how they took over the seat of government, they took over all the communications, and then they harassed the people. They made life terrible for the people as they were the occupying and controlling force of the people. But then the good news. Countries like America and other countries around the world began to send in forces. And we liberated Iraq from um, the control of ISIS. We returned the seat of government to the people the communication systems of the land to the people and things return to more normalcy. But here's the question. When we liberated Iraq, did ISIS completely go away? No. They went to hide out in the mountains. They continued their guerrilla warfare, harassing the people, but no longer reigning and ruling in control over the people. That's what happens to us when we become a Christian. Before, sin reigned and ruled in our life. We had to obey sin's demands. We became a Christian, and now Jesus is the one who is reigning and ruling in our heart. But sin, it doesn't leave us alone, does it? It harasses us. It tempts us. It tries to deceive us. But here is the thing to understand. It is not controlling us. We no longer have to obey its commands. We can say no to sin as Christians 
Before Jesus, we couldn't say no to sin. But now you and I can because it doesn't control us. What Paul does with the rest of the verses that we read is he unpacks how do we move from Christ's victory in our hearts to Christ's victory being extended into our everyday life. How do we end up with victory over sin in our everyday world? That's what he teases out here. There are three steps, and if you can memorize these steps, they will give you victory over sin as you go through your days. Number one is this. Victory over sin begins by knowing my identity in Jesus. Verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What Paul tells us is that baptism, which we saw this morning for Kathy, is a picture of how closely we are identified to Jesus. Before I continue in Paul's explanation of baptism and our identity with Jesus, let me take a moment to just talk about baptism. Because we had Kathy get baptized this morning, and I don't oftentimes have a chance to do that. Baptism does not make anyone a Christian. Baptism is an external sign of an internal reality. It's faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which is how we are born again, but baptism is a way we say publicly what has changed in our life with relationship to Jesus Christ privately. Maybe one way you can think about it is this wedding ring. This wedding ring does not make me married. What makes me married is the commitment I had made before God and before our, and before our friends to love and to cherish till death do us part my wife. But the sign that everyone else sees that I've made that private commitment is my wedding ring. It's an external sign of an internal change. The same thing is true with baptism. It's an outward sign of, the, of an inward change that has happened between us and God. And the neat part about baptism is it pictures what has happened in relationship to us and God. When we are plunged under the water, it pictures that a Christian has been buried with Christ and their old life and who they were before has died. And when they come out of the water, it pictures the fact that they've been raised to new life with Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus rose to new life, you and I as Christians have new life. We are literally completely different people after we've trusted in Christ than before we trusted in Christ. Now, it's important to be baptized. Why would I say it's important? Being a married man that refused to wear wearing a wedding ring, wouldn't that be a little odd if I refused to have an external sign of that internal commitment? In the same way, when someone becomes a Christian, it's a little odd if they don't want to be baptized and make an external proclamation of what has been an internal change. 
Because the Bible gives us this pattern of people believing and being baptized. Look at Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And what happens when somebody becomes a disciple? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What should take place in someone's life before they are baptized? Two things the Scripture tells us. Number one, they need to repent. Repent of their sin. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you were baptized and you didn't repent of your spirit, repent of your sin, all you did was take a bath. All you did was get wet. Because a relationship with Christ begins with repentance of our sin. The next thing is we need to trust in Jesus to pay for our sin. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, Well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they stopped the chariot, and Philip took the Ethiopian eunuch down to the water, and there he baptized him. And they made a public proclamation of what was a private internal change in relationship between that Ethiopian eunuch and Jesus Christ. That he had repented of his sin and trusted in Jesus to forgive him of his sin. Now, some of you, I know, were baptized as babies. And you haven't been baptized as an adult. And I'm not here to get into a big debate over infant baptism versus adult believer baptism. That's not my point. I would simply say that um, the problem that I struggle with with infant baptism is it never gives anybody who's an adult an opportunity to make a public proclamation of their faith. And maybe if you were baptized as an infant based on the faith of your parents, maybe it's a good idea to get rebaptized or baptized as an adult so you can make a proclamation of your own faith as an adult. I can tell you when I was baptized, I was a junior high boy in summer camp. It was a Christian camp. And I still remember the, the head of the camp made a comment of, in the dining hall, that they were going to be having a baptism service later on that week. And if anybody wanted to be baptized, to talk to him. And so I went and I, I talked to him. And I chose to make a public proclamation of my faith in Christ. It wasn't my parents' faith at that point. It was my faith. In fact, my parents didn't even know I was baptized until they picked me up from summer camp. But here's the neat part. I can still look back on it. And I can remember that day and remember those moments with incredible clarity when in front of the entire camp I made a public proclamation of my faith in Christ that I chose to do. The challenge is clear for us. If you are someone who's repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for your sin but you, to save you from your sin, but you haven't been baptized, get baptized. Talk to me after the service. Talk to one of the pastors after the service. Have an external sign where you proclaim to others the internal change 
that has taken place in your life. Now, as we return to the subject of what Paul's been talking about here, Paul is um, not necessarily focusing in on the fact of how or that we should be baptized. He's focusing in on the picture of what takes place when we are baptized. Baptism, as I said earlier, pictures that we go under the water, that the old person dies, just like Christ died on the cross. And when we come out of the water, it pictures the fact that we are raised to new life with Jesus Christ. Our old self, our old nature is literally buried when we trust in Christ and we rise to new life. This is why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you've trusted in Christ, you're a new person. You're not even the old person you used to be. Interestingly, Paul uses a botanical term in this area, in this section, where he says, you are united with Christ. It pictures what would happen if you planted two trees when they were, were young together, and as they began to grow, their sides touched one another until they actually joined one another. And later, you couldn't tell you had two trees because they were so woven together and so formed together, it looked like one tree. Paul says, that's what's happened to you and Jesus when you trusted him. That Jesus' death to sin was your death to the power of sin. Jesus' resurrection to new life was your resurrection to new life. So you are dead to sin. You do not have to obey the, the desires of sin. You do not have to obey the temptations to sin. Oh, before Jesus, you used to have to obey that. After Jesus, you don't have to obey that because we are new people who have new life. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. My old self has died. It is no longer I who live, but now it is Christ who is living in me. And what Paul will do for the next few verses is tease out the implication of our union with Christ. Verses 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, but one who has, been, who has died has been set free from sin. Our old self that used to have to follow sin's desire, desires, has been brought to absolutely nothing. You do not have to obey those desires. And then he goes to the slave market. Slave, sin is no longer your master. You do not have to obey its commands. You've died to it. You are free from sin. When you feel sin deceiving you and tempting you, you and I have the power to walk away from it and say, that used, to be, that used to be who I was, but that's not who I am. I can walk away from that. He continues, Jesus' resurrection to new life was my resurrection to new life. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, 
he lives to God. This term, once and for all, is a technical term. It means that sin will never have power over Jesus. He's raised to new life. The truth is that sin no longer has power over you anymore because you have been raised to life. Conquered sin once and for all. And this is why um, Paul, excuse me, John writes this in his letters. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now as a Christian, do we still fall to sin? Yes. But do we make a continual practice of sin? No. Because sin is no longer reigning and ruling in our life. We fall into sin, and we repent of our sin. We confess our sin, and we try to turn from our sin. This means, say, someone like my college friend who was celebrating sleeping with his girlfriend with no repentance or conviction that it was wrong, maybe he wasn't even a Christian because he was making a practice of sinning with no repentance of it whatsoever. If he was a Christian... There certainly would be no evidence that he was a Christian because of conviction and repentance and desire to change. Well, the first thing we need to know to be able to have victory over sin is we have to know what has taken place in us. That sin does not have power over us. It may tempt us, but we can still turn, we can turn away from it because Jesus Christ is large and in charge. The next thing we need to do is consider Victory over sin happens when I consider myself dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word consider here is one of the most important words in the book of Hebrews. It occurs 15 times in this book. It's actually an accounting term. It means to deposit it and put it in your account. To actually make it true. Maybe an example I can give you is, um, say, Daryl, I give you, you're, you're the, the financial guy, so I say I give you a check of, for $5,000. Are you not now $5,000 richer? Ah, see, the first service didn't get it, but he's a financial guy, so he gets it. The answer is, not yet. He has the check for $5,000, but it doesn't do any good until he deposits the check for $5,000. And that's what Paul is saying. You may know that sin has no power over you, and that Christ is in charge of your heart, but until you deposit that truth in your life, and keep reminding yourself of that truth as you're struggling with sin in your life, you will not find victory over sin in your life. Let's take an, answer, an example. Say the, the issue that you struggle with is anger. Things begin to get a little squirrely at the home. The kids begin to get under your skin, and you can feel that anger starting to well inside you. Your voice starts to rise. You start to get angry. You start to get mean. And you start to yell. 
And when you're done, you say, why do I always give in to that sin? I can't do anything about it. It seems like I'm, I'm just a slave to that sin. You know that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. But whenever I'm temp- you're tempted with your anger, you give in to it and express it. The problem is you may know that you have victory over that sin, but you haven't considered that is true. When you start to find anger welling up inside you, and you have that temptation where you're going to start to get use bitter and spiteful words, you have to stop and say, no, no, wait a minute. That's who I used to be. That's the well-worn path of sin I used to follow, but that's not who I am now. That's not the character that God is cultivating in my life through Jesus. I don't have to yell. I don't have to raise my voice. I don't have to let that sin be my master. I can turn away from it, and I can be gentle, and I can be kind. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave a great illustration of this when he was preaching on this text uh, many years ago. He said that in the Civil War, when the Civil War was over, all of the slaves in the South were freed. didn't matter if they were old or they were young. But the problem was that the older slaves knew they were free, but they had a trouble believing that they were free. Some of them uh, refused to leave their masters because they didn't know what they would do. Others did leave their masters, but when they saw their masters in public, they'd begin bowing to them and sort of cowering to them as if they were still in charge. Those slaves knew they had freedom, but they had a hard time considering it to actually be true in their lives. Folks, we are dead to sin. It is not reigning and ruling in your heart anymore. When sin beckons you and tempts you, consider it as true that you no longer have to follow it. Sin is not your master. Christ is your master. Don't just know that in your head, but consider it as true in your life and remind yourself of it as many times a day as you need to till it sinks in. The next thing he says to produce victory over sin is not just know the truth of who you are and consider it as true, but he talks about make right choices. Victory over sin happens when I make choices in line with my identity. I am to stop making choices that let sin reign in my life. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments to unrighteousness. What he says is that we are a Christian, but sometimes we let sin just continue to exist, continue to reign and influence and control us in our Christian lives. We know it is wrong, but we haven't done anything to kick it out of our lives and to rebuke it and to turn away from it. Don't let sin reign in your lives. Uh, An example would be, maybe for you it was social media. Remember the summer, how so many people were on social media? And a lot of the things that people were saying were hateful, spiteful, mean, If you found yourself on social media, you got yourself all worked up, and maybe you said some really nasty things in response, 
on social media? You came home and you were just an angry person. And all of a sudden you found out that maybe social media had become an area of sin that was now reigning and ruling in your life. And you need to say, that's not who I am. That's not who God has called me to be. I need to kick that social media habit out of my life for right now. Because God has called me to be a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. The other thing he says is, don't, we don't just kick sinful habits out of our life, but we take the members of our body and we don't submit them to sin. Or we don't let our body become tempted in that way by sin. Take your eyes. That's a member of your body. It matters what you look at on the internet. Because if you start looking at stuff that's unhelpful, can't you find yourself tempted to go back into your old sinful ways? Take your ears. It matters what you listen to. Think of the music you listen to. Is it honoring God? Is it lifting Him up? Or is it making you hear and repeat things that Jesus would not want to do? Your feet, where are they taking you? Are they taking you places that pull you away from Christ? Paul says, don't submit the members of your body to sin. Make right choices in line with who you are. And then he says this, I am to pursue in place of that choices that lead me to honor God with my life. Romans 6.13, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, that's the parts of your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. I love the way Paul says this. It's not just kick your old sinful habits out of your life and don't let them reign. It's not just don't do what you did before, but it's replace what you did before with things that are positive and good. If it comes to kicking a sinful habit, you don't just take the old one out. You have to put a new and righteous habit in its place. Or what happens? The old habit comes right back in the vacuum that is there. So instead of saying, I'm going to let sin reign in my life, we consciously say, God, I want you to be in charge of my life. Use me in any way you can for your honor, your glory, and your kingdom. And the members of your body, instead of using your mouth as a way to spread gossip, use your mouth as a way to spread encouragement. Instead of using your feet, letting you take your feet take you in a place that would be uh, drawing you into sin, let your feet take you to places that would be encouraging you in your faith. Instead of your eyes letting you draw you into sin on something on the internet you shouldn't see, let your eyes look at books or things that are helpful and positive and true to encourage you in your faith. Victory over sin that we have in our heart from Jesus Christ. The way it works out in our lives is we have to, number one, know the truth of who we are in Jesus and that sin no longer reigns. Consider it as true, not just know it in our head. And then we have to make choices choices that are in line with who we are, turning away from the sinful ones and leaning into the God-honoring ones. My friends, that is my gift for you this morning. And taking those three steps will give you victory over sin in your life. 
no matter what that sin is. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.